As we begin our time this morning, I want everyone to think about your favorite school teacher. Maybe you're in school right now, or maybe you haven't stepped foot in a classroom in 50 years. Either way, chances are that most of us in this room won't have to think very long before a very clear answer comes into our minds. Teachers have a way of influencing us in powerful and amazing ways, especially in the formative years of our lives. If you think about it, teachers have an incredible amount of power, even when they aren't actively teaching in a classroom setting. Even some casual throwaway words shared between a teacher and a student in the time between classes can have profound and life-changing effects. And Perhaps even some of you have experienced something like that in your past. Words, for example, like, have you ever considered going into engineering? It can change the trajectory of a person's life in significant ways when spoken by a teacher. And these words often seem to hold more power coming from them than they would coming from a friend or a relative or even a parent. There is something amazingly powerful about a teacher's influence in our lives, especially the good ones, and that cannot be ignored. Their words are powerful and can affect great change. And if that is true for the teachers who taught us math and science and English and history, if their words can change where we live, what school we go to, and what career path we end up on, how much more true is it to say that the words of a spiritual teacher whose role is to proclaim truth to us and shepherd our souls into eternity hold immense weight and power? James understood the powerful influence of spiritual teachers for all of God's people, and he understood that their words hold power that carries eternal consequences for those who are sitting under their teaching. He understood that teaching within the body of Christ is one of the most weighty responsibilities that a person could ever carry. In our passage this morning, he wants to make sure that his hearers understand the weight of that responsibility correctly and understand themselves rightly in relation to it. So from these two verses this morning, I want us to do three things. And the first of these things is I want us to consider the weighty responsibility of teaching. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 3, James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, before we dig a little deeper into this verse, I think it would help us to remember the context of this passage and the situation into which James would have been writing. As Pastor Andrew has taught a number of times throughout this sermon series, James is most likely the earliest New Testament book. At this time, none of Paul's letters would have been written, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have still been decades away from writing their accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. The church at this point would have been made up of entirely formerly Jewish believers, and they would have all been relatively recent converts, owing to the fact that Jesus hadn't even been gone for all that long by the time this book was written. And that means that this book has a very distinctly Jewish background 
to it, and that fact is instructive for us as we consider this verse. In the Jewish tradition, those given the role of teacher were called rabbis. They were highly esteemed, revered, and honored all throughout Jewish society. The term rabbi literally translates to my great one, and people understood it was their duty to serve the rabbi even more than their own families. In fact, one commentator even mentioned that back in James's day, if you were a Jew and your rabbi, your mother, and your father were captured by an enemy and held for ransom, you would have been sworn by duty to ransom the rabbi first, even before your own parents. The role of a teacher in James's day was a role that afforded all kinds of respect and honor and high esteem, far more even than it does today. And we can understand then why many people in the churches to which James was writing might have been motivated to aspire to that position. We could certainly understand that there could have been those whose aspirations were not entirely rooted in pure and proper motives. First and foremost, James wants to speak directly to those who would aspire to the position of teacher within the body of Christ. He wants them to know that you need to be motivated by more than a desire to be respected, revered, and esteemed. You need to aspire to this position for the right reasons. Why might that be? Well, James tells us that not many people should become teachers, and he gives us the reason. That reason is that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus spoke many times throughout his life and ministry about the judgment that would come at the end of the world. He spoke in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, for example, and said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In Luke 12, 2 and 3, Jesus said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Later on in that same chapter of Luke, Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Contrary to what many people in our world believe today, Jesus spent a fair bit of his time speaking about the judgment of God and warning people to be prepared for it. And along those same lines, the apostles who followed after Jesus wrote to the churches about these things as well. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, the apostle Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Romans 14, 10 and 12, Paul writes again, Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And finally, Perhaps one of the clearest and most well-known examples of this teaching in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Without question, then, we simply cannot avoid the fact the Bible teaches that a time of judgment is coming and that God will judge each person according to their deeds. And as if that isn't scary enough already, James wants his hearers to know that teachers in particular will be held to an even higher standard and be judged with even greater strictness. And why is that? Well, I'm not going to spend too much time looking ahead to the rest of James 3 this morning because I don't want to spoil everyone about what's coming next week, but the answer James clearly has in mind is because words are powerful. Words are especially powerful coming from teachers whose entire way of being is firmly rooted in speaking words most of the time. And believe me, the irony is not lost on me this morning as I stand up to teach on a passage that says not many should be teachers because teachers will be judged more harshly. I must admit, while I'm very happy that Pastor Andrew has been able to get away to some nice warm weather, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought to myself a few times this week that he sure did leave me a doozy of a passage to (laughs) preach, didn't he? And yet, in all seriousness, is there any job in the entire world that you can think of more important than a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are many in this world who aspire to become pastors for the wrong reasons. Maybe you've known a few of them personally, and even if you haven't, you could probably come up with a list of names in your own heads of people who abuse the position of a teacher in today's modern Christian world for their own benefit, to line their own pockets and to bask in the glory given to them by others. But when a teacher stands up to preach, he is being entrusted with the very words of God, the words that bring restoration to a broken world, words that raise dead hearts and that save souls from eternal judgment and bring people to new life in Christ for all eternity. Why would anyone ever want to take that kind of responsibility flippantly without really considering the weight of the task in front of them? And so... If we happen to have any young men in the room this morning who are considering becoming pastors, first and foremost, James is talking to you. He isn't trying to dissuade genuinely called, gifted, and humble people to the work of ministry, but he is trying to warn you that pastoral ministry is not the job to get into for the wrong reasons. You can get into a lot of jobs for the wrong reasons, but none of them come with a promise from God of harsher judgment at the end of all things. Consider the weight of that calling, brothers, and weigh your own motives carefully because the implications are very serious indeed. But the reality is, most of you here this morning are not young men considering going into ministry, and so what does this passage have to say to everybody else here this morning? Well, I could think of a few things, and first, I think that understanding The weightiness and importance of teaching should drive us all to consider very carefully the teaching that we allow into our own lives. 
When it comes to spiritual teachers, most of us get the opportunity to choose who we listen to and choose who we give our attention to. And if spiritual teaching is so important that God has a special level of judgment for it in the last day, that should help you and I to realize just how serious it really is. And if, so if you spend any time throughout the week listening to sermons, listening to Christian podcasts, reading Christian books, I think this passage would highly commend to all of us that we spend considerable effort making sure that we fill our lives with teaching that is beneficial, rightly motivated, and rightly faithful to God's Word. We want to give our attention to those who will be judged faithful on the last day. But this line of thinking goes beyond just what we listen to or read throughout the week. What about what we listen to on a Sunday morning? Many churches in God's kingdom, our own included, place at least some of the responsibility of selecting and confirming leaders in the hands of the congregation. As a member of this church, you have some say in those who are raised up as elders, shepherds, and teachers among us. And if nothing else, I think this first verse of James 3 should inspire us all the more to take that responsibility seriously as we understand just how seriously God takes teaching in the church. And wherever you do find faithful, godly men who preach the word to you with proper motivation, with a humble heart, and with fidelity to the truth, let me encourage you to support, pray for, and encourage those men. In particular, and I'm a guest preacher this morning, so I get to say things like this, the role of a preaching pastor is often more lonely and discouraging than you would think. Criticism tends to flow quite freely, and encouragement can sometimes be hard to come by. And we here at CBC Elderton have been deeply blessed with a faithful lead pastor whose works, I believe, will stand in the judgment and not be burned up on the last day. And so, with our own lead pastor specifically in mind, who is not here in the building this morning to hear me say this, though perhaps watching online, allow me to say again, wherever God blesses you with teachers like that, support them generously, love them dearly, and encourage them mightily, because that is a gift that we can never afford to take for granted. Lastly, though, I think this verse can also apply to most of us here this morning in a broader sense. If we zoom out from thinking about pastors for a moment, we realize that the spiritual teaching in a church happens in a lot more places than just the pulpit, doesn't it? Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you lead a men's group or a women's group, or perhaps you lead a life group. Many of us have opportunities to teach in the church apart from preaching, and that's you this morning. I'm afraid I have some bad news. Everything James says about stricter judgment in verse 1 applies to you this morning as well. Maybe some of you are sitting there breathing a sigh of relief. You might think, well, I'm not a teacher, so I must be in the clear, but don't think you're out of the woods just yet either. If you have children here this morning, if you're a parent, is it not the case that your role is to be one of the primary spiritual teachers in your children's lives? And if you don't have kids, do you ever spend any time talking with your brothers and sisters after the service, perhaps giving them some spiritual encouragement or advice as they face difficult life circumstances? I don't think we would be totally off base to think 
about these things as opportunities for teaching also? If your answer to any of those questions is yes, then guess what? James is talking about you too. Now, I am intentionally being a little bit silly here, but the point remains that when we slow down and really listen to what this verse is saying, it, it really is a little bit uncomfortable. It's certainly uncomfortable for me standing up here, but it also starts to become more uncomfortable for all of us the more we realize that very few of us can fully dodge the responsibility of this verse and assume that it must only apply to someone else. James isn't talking about someone else in this passage. He's talking about you. Whether you chose the position of teacher or whether you find yourself in it for reasons mostly outside of your control, being a teacher is a serious and weighty position to be in because it comes with enormous responsibility and a genuine threat of greater judgment. James wanted his readers to be sobered by that thought. And those of us here this morning, thousands of years later, are still a part of that intended audience. So here in the first verse of James 3, as we consider the weighty responsibility of teaching, we're confronted with the fact that teaching of any sort in the church is an extremely serious reality, and we will all have to stand before God and give an account of how well we did it. I don't know about you this morning, but I, for one, am very glad that I am preaching more than one verse here this morning. I'm glad that I'm preaching too, because in the next verse, James shows us that there is a little bit more to this story. So first, I wanted us to consider the weighty responsibility of teaching. Next, I want you to realize your own imperfection. Beginning in verse 2, James says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. In case you were afraid that James was trying to tell us that we all needed to get everything perfectly right, we all get to breathe a collective sigh of relief as he admits that all of us, himself included, fail to live up to the weight of responsibility that we carry on our shoulders. We all stumble in many ways, James says. I'm sure that each one of us can attest strongly to the truth of that statement, particularly as it relates to our speech and to our words. I've heard the story a thousand times before. I have stories like this, and I know that you have stories like this too. They always go something like this. Even as I heard the words leaving my mouth, I wish that I could catch them and just shove them back inside. Some of you might be wincing or squirming a little bit in your seat as I've maybe brought to mind some particularly painful memories of the effect that our hurtful and destructive words can have on those around us. Words have a way of entirely bypassing our brains sometimes, don't they? How often do we sin with our mouths against those we love and how often do we do it before we've even had a chance to think about what we're saying? How often do our emotions get the better of us and cause us to verbally lash out in ways that surprise even ourselves? When it comes to the use of our words, James says that we all stumble in many ways. I think that all of us can collectively say a decisive amen to that, can't we? James goes on to express that our speech is, in fact, such a powerful point of stumbling for us that 
Purity of speech is perhaps the clearest and most definitive mark of spiritual maturity. In the second half of verse 2, he says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his, his whole body. And as we consider this, we would do well to remember back to James chapter 1, verse 4, where James says that steadfastness in suffering is designed to make us perfect and complete. You've heard Pastor Andrew argue many times that this word perfect carries a different sense in biblical Greek than we often think about in English. When we think of the word perfect, we think of something that has no flaws whatsoever. Something that is perfect has nothing wrong with it, and therefore we would consider a perfect person to be someone who never sins. But in the Greek, this word carries a stronger sense of the fulfillment or completeness that comes when something has reached its intended goal. Think about this. When the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.10 that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, he couldn't possibly mean that Jesus wasn't sinless before he suffered, right? No, surely this idea of being made perfect carries a different meaning. That meaning is that Jesus was brought to full maturity and readiness for all that he was ordained to accomplish through the suffering that he experienced on this earth. There is a very real sense in which Jesus wasn't ready to accomplish his task until after he experienced suffering. The word mature may best capture the nuance of what perfect means here in our passage in a way that rings a little clearer to our modern English ears. And so James is saying that if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a mature man. That is to say, do you want to know what a mature Christian looks like? More than anything, James tells us that spiritual maturity can be discerned by considering a person's words, even above their conduct. In fact, James says that if you can control your mouth, you can pretty much control anything else about yourself, too. The mouth is the hardest thing of all to control, something that you'll see James talks about a lot more in the next few verses. And so, if anyone can get a handle on that thing, you can be pretty confident they can probably get a handle on everything else, too. But we don't have a perfect handle on our mouths, do we? Nor do we always have much of a handle on many other parts of ourselves, either. James is right. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. But I can tell you this morning, that certainly isn't me, and I'm pretty sure it isn't anyone else in this room, either. So we need to realize our own imperfection. We also need to realize that God's standard of judgment doesn't change just because we aren't perfect. James' earlier point from verse 1 still stands. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Those of us who have been given any responsibility to teach in any capacity will be held to a stricter standard. Not only that, but James has just told us that we're all but guaranteed to screw it up quite possibly spectacularly. So is, is that it? We're all just going to stand before God in judgment and we're pretty much guaranteed to fail? There is nothing good at all about that news, but I'm thankful that even as we consider our absolute inability to stand before the judgment of God in our own righteousness, we've already heard from James himself, chapter 2, verse 13, that mercy triumphs over judgment wanted us to realize our own imperfections, but finally this morning, I want us to look 
to the perfect teacher. Because it turns out that there was exactly one human being in all of history who, as James says, did not stumble in what he said. Indeed, he was a perfect man. And he was indeed able to bridle his whole body perfectly every moment of every day of his life from birth to death. I'm speaking, of course, about our great Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who, from the beginning, has always succeeded wherever and whenever his people have failed. He is the one who, like Moses, stands in the gap between God and his people, mediates mercy and forgiveness to sinful, broken, imperfect people who stand under the righteous judgment of God. And in his death, all of our failures of speech, all of our failures as teachers in any capacity, and all of our failures in every other way are completely forgiven, completely washed away. In Jesus, we are cleansed, but we need more than just a clean slate to stand before God in the judgment, especially as those who stand before stricter judgment as teachers. We, we don't just need a clean slate. We need to come to God with real, genuine righteousness. And not only does Jesus' death bring us forgiveness, but his perfect life gives us that righteousness. As we stand before God, Jesus clothes us in his perfect obedience. We are judged not on the basis of our own performance, but on the basis of his performance as our perfect Savior. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Old Testament is Zechariah 3. In that chapter, Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before God. Here's how the story goes. Zechariah writes, Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. To him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. When we are united to Christ by faith, our filthy garments are removed. We are instead clothed with pure garments of perfect righteousness. We could never stand before the judgment seat of God in our own righteousness, but we do not have to. We stand before God clothed in Jesus' perfect obedience. It will be as if we had perfectly obeyed in every way, every moment of our lives, from beginning to end. So even though we fail spectacularly at times and rightly bring judgment upon ourselves, in Christ, we can look to the day of judgment with full assurance that we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. In the midst of our own failures and our own brokenness, we must look to the perfect teacher and find rest in the good news of his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And when we do, we suddenly find ourselves freed 
and the burden of guilt and shame and dread, instead of seeing the weighty responsibility of teaching with eyes of fear, we can pursue excellence and obedience in our teaching from a foundation of safety, security, and trust. We can embrace the immense responsibility we have been given as teachers with joy, because when God's people operate from a place of safety, security, and rest, suddenly God's commands become a delight, and we desire to obey them out of love for him, out of thankfulness for his great mercy and grace toward us in Christ, and not to earn our favor before the Lord, or to earn standing before him, or to earn our own acceptance before him on the day of judgment. God grants each one of us a powerful opportunity to use our words to influence people with the great truths of his word. Whether we've been called to teach in a formal or informal capacity, wherever we have been called to teach, as pastors, Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, parents, older siblings, or just friends with our fellow brothers and sisters, we are given an opportunity to have a profound spiritual influence on those who may very well think about us someday when some preacher in the far future begins his sermon by asking them to think about their favorite teacher. So let us consider with sober minds the weighty responsibility that we carry. Anywhere we are given the opportunity to use our words to teach the great and glorious truths of God, and in spite of our weakness and imperfection, let us joyfully embrace the delight of being used by God in the lives of others as we fix our eyes on our perfect Savior, the perfect teacher, who will faithfully carry us all the way to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the perfect teacher who takes away our iniquity, who clothes us in perfect righteousness, and who allows us to, to bear the weighty responsibility of teaching with joy. May we all joyfully embrace that responsibility, and as we do, would you use us mightily, even in our weakness, to build up your people, to advance your kingdom, to grow in love for you and love for others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.